Hello. I'm back. I exiled myself for the last couple of uh, prediction panels because they were very strikey matchups. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just a wrestling guy. I don't want to talk about strikers. You know, no one's going to respect my opinion. Then I remembered, like, I'm, I'm the boss, man. I, I can do whatever I want. So, yeah, here I am. Deal with it. And uh, we're going to talk about a very striking matchup. That's the main event of UFC 257, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. It's a rematch. And uh, if you didn't know, Conor McGregor did win the first fight by knockout in the first round. But maybe that matters and maybe it doesn't. You're going to find out today, the day that you're listening to this. I can't predict when that will be. Um, but yeah, I have a very talented and knowledgeable panel, panel with me, but uh, we just lost Ben. Uh, so the panel has shrunk. He's back. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we got uh, our, our fight site staff, Shiram Raleigh-Darn and uh, Ben Cohn. And we also have, as usual, Dan Tom, who mostly writes for MMA Junkie. Dan, what else do you, what else do, you do? You do a lot of stuff. Uh, I also work for a, a betting site for you degenerates out there, lineboomman.com. And then you can also find me uh, on the Protect Your Neck podcast if your uh, ears have the uh, space and capacity. Nice. Yeah. I, I never know like which things are connected to which and if they're separate and things like that. So it's good to have it all laid out. Um, but yeah, you can follow him at Dan Tom MMA, which is very easy to find. And he's got a check mark. So you know, there's no way you're going to miss him. And uh, I recently found out that Dan is Italian and uh, he's also Hawaiian. So it just really makes me think Hawaiian pizza. So I really associate those things together now. And I like pineapple on pizza. So if you, if you turn it off because of that, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to deal with the consequences. Ben's giving me a look. He's judging, you know, a perfectly reasonable food combination. Perfectly reasonable. That's anyway. one I'd argue. Nah, nah, it's fine. I don't uh, understand how you're not ashamed of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I only argue it to make Ben mad, but I would argue it. No, hey, here's some middle ground. Here's some middle ground for anybody hating. If you don't like it, swap out the, the Canadian bacon for some pepperoni. You really get the sweet and salty in there, and that might change your opinion. Just saying. It's a classic. Sweet and salty is a classic thing, and like with with dairy, like it works. It works very well. You're just a hater if you don't like it, uh, and that's all no, I have to say it. about that. That's not what this panel is about. Panel is about fighting, about mixed martial arts. So we're going to talk about that instead. Uh, just wanted to throw in a little controversy there. It's the most controversial thing about this fight is Dan Tom covering it and being Italian Hawaiian. Can I just point out? You said, "Oh, I wasn't. I'm a wrestler, so I didn't come on the striking podcast." Uh, discussions and you brought the grappler on also in addition yeah. to you yeah so whatever, whatever. Just, you know, we're, we're bringing on the very best that the fight side has to offer here who cares if ryan would agree to come on them more often i wouldn't have this problem but ryan's too good for us so there we are anyway i'm going to kick this thing off so the format of these panels is that we're all going to get a chance to talk about both fighters and the matchup and then we're going to talk about you know how we see the fight going and our predictions that way you get a very holistic picture of, of everything going on here. Because usually sometimes, you know, when it's, when it's fight week, people only talk about fighters in the context of their opponent. I think it's more fun to get the, the full picture and, uh, you know, makes it longer, fills airspace. <laughs> so that's a good way to do it too. And we go one at a time and we just talk about the fighter. Then we talk about the next fighter. And then we talk yeah, about the matchup and the predictions. Ben, Ben totally screwed it up last time I was on here with you guys for UFC 256. But Fake you know news. what, Ben? That Fake was a news. good that was a good podcast for you because you said a lot of correct things about uh, Brandon Moreno and how he was going to do. 
against Davis and Figueredo, and you had your whole Charles Oliveira thing. So if you wanted to gloat for a second, now's your time. I'm not going to be nearly as right on this one. That's all I can yeah, say. <laughs> to say that. But. So congrats to Ben for, for that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to start. So I'm going to talk about Conor McGregor. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about him because I think a lot of people have cool things to say about him, and I don't have many cool things to say about him. But uh, you know, he was always – I think Conor at featherweight and Conor at lightweight are very different entities. Um, so featherweight, uh, much more kicky. <laughs> much more explosive just some you know, generic observations there um none of his weapons were particularly different i think the turning point was probably the first diaz fight where uh he gassed himself out fighting a similar style they did at featherweight but he realized that uh he didn't have quite the same stopping power as he did at the lower weight class and uh he, yeah he got tired beating him up so i think that kind of uh changed changed the way he approached fights a little bit uh more more static counterpunching like you saw in the Alvarez fight um we really haven't seen you know a lot of the in and out bounciness that you used to see from Connor uh you know maybe more of a karate inspired style uh I think he kind of made a shift towards what could be considered more more of a classic boxing style uh and also coincides with his interest in professional boxing and uh that fight that never happened that he was interested in uh, who even remembers it not me so <laughs> uh for, so for the recent versions of Connor um things he's still good at um the southpaw double attack for sure uh aiden uh our, our youngest analyst and one of our best uh had a very good breakdown video on our youtube channel about uh, connor's kicking game this week and uh he made some good observations one about the southpaw double attack how uh the threat of connor's straight left causes people to slip offline or just get hit by it but if you catch them slipping uh then you can fire off the uh, the round kick on the same side and people will you know move into the power uh, that's how he knocked out. Well, that's how he rocked Donald Cerrone and kicked him in the head. So that's still there uh, recently. And, uh, yeah, we didn't really get to see too much more, but definitely uh, just just the um, the combination of his biggest punching threat and his kicking game, they still go together. Um, you didn't see him kick for a couple fights, and you're one, you, you, know, you wonder what that was. Um, kicked a bit a bit against Khabib, but you know that wasn't really a performance that's super fair to judge him by because as a, as a striker, because he did get ground out pretty early on and then gassed out by Khabib, you know, mauling him. So really, like the past, those are his past two fights, right? Cowboy and then Khabib before that. So we really haven't gotten to see a good look of him as a striker uh, over the course of a fight in many years. Um, so it's really, really hard to say where he's at right now. Um, but what I will say is that, you know, not delving into the matchup yet, but, uh, he's a very different fighter from like the first round and a half to when the fight gets a little deeper and you, you kind of settle into it. Um, his stopping power changes. It, it's a little less snappy. He still hits very hard. He's heavy handed, uh, but it's not quite the same and, uh, definitely more flat footed, easier to pressure guard is more easily manipulated. He changes as a fighter of the course of the fight. And it's not like he, you know, is terrible or like way worse, but to use a, a lazy analogy, I would say he goes from an A level fighter to a B level fighter, you know, over the course of a fight and a B level fighter is very good. Um, it's just not the same threat that you have early on. So that's something interesting to consider that I think most people recognize. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just my general observations. I didn't want to do a full breakdown of him as a fighter because I am not a big Connor studier just because, uh, I'm a hipster. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to care about him. 
Uh, so I'm just going to pass it off. I'm going to pass it off to Dan Tom. What, what, what do you think about Conor McGregor as, as a fighter? I think we're all kind of hipsters here, right? Like even with the pizza discussion, I was just imagining that. I'm like, that would be the most hipster ass pizza party with like hanging out with, you know, me and you guys in the fight site. That would be a super hipster pizza party. But listen, that's why I love the fight site. Because there's advertising, you know, no one's advertising their whiskey brands or anything like that. And you're not going to find any of that here, folks. Just good old analysis. But to talk about Connor, I need some Coke. And not the cheap Coke, like from Mexico. So I've got nice Coca-Cola, of course. Nice, crisp, tasty Coke. Like like the fight site gives you crisp breakdowns. There we go. Anyway, speaking of uh, non-corporate shit. Listen, all right, I'm really tired, folks. You're getting me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you're getting me at um. You're getting me at a uh, you're getting me at a, at a delirious Dan Tom here, but listen, uh, I, on the hipster note, I too am hipster, but I, I do have to study Connor primarily because I, you know I work for outlets and outlets want the Connor stuff. So, but me being a hipster, I try to you know find random stuff like oh cool he did the Travis Brown elbow thing like before Travis Brown did that's kind of funny for everything that we love to give credit for Connor for it's like especially from the media standpoint, like we couldn't find, we couldn't find, uh, you know, enough stuff to give him credit for yet. You know, no one ever mentions that one. Um, his kicking game, which I didn't go check out yet, but y'all, if you haven't yet, go check out that article there on the fightsite.com about Connor's kicks. Um, I still have to write more about him this week. So I have to have my filter like somewhat turned on. Otherwise I would have checked that out because I'm sure it points out all the great points that Connor not, is not just, you know, a boxer, not just like a one-handed bandit, like people accuse Dotton Till or Cotton Till, however you want to call him now these days, right? Uh, he actually has a kicking game and he, he uses it not just to steer or try to even, you know, uh, hurt, when, you know, if you look at compared to like the Seaver fight where, you know, the, the type of kicks that he's using um, as far as really sitting into him. And they're not really like hard tie kicks. They're kind of more of his karate style hybrid, which usually lack in the power. And I'm a karate guy. I'm just calling the truth for what it is, right? But he has all these kind of different variations or how he wants to move your guard up um, or he'll pick off. He does his homework. That's the one thing I, that I kind of got the most from my most recent studies on having to go and refresh myself because the guy only fights, what, two MMA fights in 50 months. So you got to refresh yourself, right, when, you, when you're talking about those time, time spaces. And something I, I really do got to give the guy credit for, though, is he really seems to do his homework. Like when he does focus on something. Like he seems to be really, you know, he, he uh, I don't want to say, you know, smart, but he knows how to apply himself, you know, like he'll look, you, you'll look at like uh, the fight with Seaver again. And you can kind of tell, like he went back and watched what did Cerrone do with him, you know? And then when he fought Cerrone, it's like, okay, what did Benson Henderson do to him? And you see him kind of take these little things. So those are some cool little things that maybe he doesn't get credit for because he's so darn po polarizing. But, uh, but yeah, I think we all are kind of pretty familiar with Connor. He can counter, but he, he also, you know, obviously works with awful lot of pressure and which is, we'll talk about, I think a real key theme is he's a fast starter, one of the fastest and uh, most accurate starters. And I think that's a big uh, thing to do with this matchup as I pass the torch. He passed the torch, Jerome. Take the torch. Uh, yeah, I wasn't completely aware of the order, but uh, yeah, uh, I agree with the fast starter thing. I think there's a couple of things that both you and Ed mentioned uh, beyond just McGregor's normal technical game. Um, 
So to start out with the technical game, because that's pretty much the part of the point of having like separate things for each person. Uh, McGregor is, uh, he's pretty much the archetype that guys like Darren Till have tried to imitate uh, quite badly uh, in comparison to him. But uh, he pressures his opponents back, uses the southpaw distance to draw out um, their attempts to cover distance and counters them for that. And if they're too easy to back up, he can uh, work around their guard. That's where his accuracy helps out a lot. We saw that in the first Dustin Poirier fight, where Poirier's uh, pretty static uh, high guard got him uh, killed pretty early because he was like ducking down behind it and Scott got behind here. So uh, Poirier, uh, McGregor rather is very good at uh, ripping apart static guards. Uh, he goes to the body pretty often when his opponent is against the fence. So that's one place his opponents don't want to be and they know that which is why they have a couple of stock responses against a southpaw, which is either circling away where McGregor is very good at hitting that left hand off the inside angle or to charge forward where McGregor can plant and counter or hit that backstepping counter that he hit on Jose Aldo. Um, one place where we saw the um, his ability to counter guys who are covering distance badly is against Eddie Alvarez. And I think it's kind of tough to judge with Eddie Alvarez because he's got such a defined liability against that kind of opponent where uh, a long southpaw such as Dustin Poirier also found that where uh, Eddie would like cover distance behind these long double right hands and uh, McGregor was just, it was way too easy for him to do that. But against other opponents, he's planning to counter too. Of course, the, uh, the classic all little finishing sequence. Um, he enforces distance with his kicking game, as you guys mentioned with Aiden's YouTube video. Uh, it's not just the round kicks to play off that straight uh, left. It's also the kicks to the legs, uh, the, the long linear kick, the low line side kick, as well as that the teep that he took apart Chad Mendez with. So all of that, I think McGregor's game, people have a pretty decent image of it generally in terms of, you know, what it looks like. But uh, overall, I think it's a lot deeper than people give it credit for considering his um, his reputation for quick knockouts. And that generally comes with like, oh, he starts fast and he has power. That's McGregor's game. And it, uh, that's a big part of it. But uh, obviously, he's a lot deeper than people give it credit for. I think the issue that I have with both the fast starting and the fact that uh, McGregor hasn't figured out an elite opponent since literally the Obama administration is that those two things tend to kind of have a little bit of a correlation. Uh, McGregor's best performances uh, against Aldo and against Alvarez were actually off very quick turnarounds. So against Aldo, it was Mendez at 189 and then Aldo at 194. And against Alvarez, it was Nate Diaz two at 202 and at 205, it was Eddie Alvarez. So a three paper, it's like, it tends to be a pay-per-view month. So three month turnaround, five month turnaround approximately. Uh, and right now he's on 13 months, which means I think McGregor's ability to make those really quick reads, it's something that I think has benefited a lot from him being in there more often than an elite, very popular fighter tends to be. And combined with the way that he's living, all that Mexican Coca-Cola and money to buy watches with people having sex on them and yachts, um, I kind of struggle. But there's also a question with Poirier that's like literally the exact opposite. So uh, once Ben's back from his fridge, uh, I'll pass it off to him. But yeah, that's pretty much my read on McGregor. He is uh, very aggressive, very fast starting, and it's going to take a decent effort from anyone to beat him, assuming he still is who he is. Ben? So Ben, it's Connor. Then you can talk about Dustin, but not, not the matchup. Swim Ram already got it right. I don't know why you're repeating yourself. <laughs> Uh, Dan, uh, you said it best. We don't have any corporate sponsors. However, we do support our small businesses. Try Ben's Beef Jerky today. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so Conor McGregor, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I did go back and watch like uh, the first fight with Poirier for this. And there's a couple of things that, that, that uh, you know, in Conor's featherweight career, which you guys pointed out, it, it was a very different 
fighter, his, his, his application of his style, while he had the same archetype, he had the, the come forward pressure fighter who likes to uh, get you to, to lead so he can land those big counters and kind of peck away at you with these long strikes. That archetype was still there, but there was a significantly more volume. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that his gas tank was better, but his ability to, to throw out more volume and make you more tired than he became was there. And once moving up to lightweight and like, I guess technically welterweight, um, that's not the same. And he's not the same fighter anymore. He's a different, uh, he's more mature in the way he applies his uh, style as well. He'll still come out fast, like we saw with Cerrone, but I also think that a portion of that was knowing that he could get Cerrone out of there pretty quickly, just based on one, Cerrone's physical state at that point, and B, two, uh, you know, Cerrone's a slow starter. It's kind of pretty straightforward. Um, the 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 southpaw double attack is obviously still there. He utilizes it extremely well. It's how he finished Cerrone, um, and it's been a part of all of his best performances. Uh, I do think that that uh, it the the thing that I think makes him, like you said, so successful is that it, in his best performances he had those quicker turnarounds and someone who comes out fast and tries to get his timing immediately, you kind of need those quick turnarounds. So you don't lose that feel. That being said, he, even when he does kind of like uh, have longer uh, times off, we've still seen him be able to apply that regardless. Um, The Khabib loss, I got to take that out of the equation because Dustin doesn't even remotely resemble him, and nobody does. The first Nate lost. I don't think he had any uh, uh, trouble getting his timing. I think he just blew his wad. Um, and then the second Nate fight, which took was was, was after a pretty long. T- it was a longer turnaround than some of his other fights. Um, and he again, same thing. He came out really calm and collected, but with the same archetypal style of coming forward, pecking away at range getting his timing, landing the big shots. And I don't think there's too much more to add to that. We kind of all know what Connor is. Everyone's kind of seen him. There's been a thousand breakdowns of his. Aiden's is the best. Go check it out, please. Um, so that's kind of my read is that he's just a more mature, slightly pared down version. He's not throwing nearly as many spinny kicks or stupid things that he used to when he was at featherweight. So I think he's actually a, better version right now, even with all the uh, um, recreational activities. Um, And the, you know, yeah. Dustin, um, man, I I really love Dustin as a fighter. He's genuinely one of my favorite fighters of all time. And he's also an actual good person, which is so rare in MMA that we should celebrate it as much as possible. and I'm, I, I, I love the developments that we've seen from his move up from featherweight. Like the, 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 a lot of the elements that are at, that he had at featherweight are still there. The, the, the combination punching, right? That's not only there, but it's actually way better and more effective now. And he's much better at picking his shots and also being more defensively sound for the most part, hooker fight notwithstanding. Um, first two rounds of the hooker fight, notwithstanding. He's become much more adept 
defensively while also maintaining that offensive uh, aggression and, and barrage that he's kind of known for it and he's improved upon it. Um, I think he's a much smarter fighter now. We've seen him develop, bring out some really, really excellent game plans. For example, the Gagey fight, he fought that fight, I wouldn't say perfectly because he ate a bajillion leg kicks, which technically was part of the game plan, but all right. Um, but he had hair trigger counters on every single one of those. Um, and that was one of the best performances we've seen from him. Uh, we've seen him uh, come in from that second Alvarez fight and look not only amazing, just like he did in the first round of that Alvarez fight, but <clears throat> he looked even better. He, 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 he took away a lot of the mistakes that caused him to kind of lose that, not lose that first fight, get cheated out of winning that first fight. Um, so as a fighter, he's improved tremendously. There are still problems with his style um, that do cause issues. He could still, even though he's improved mentally as a fighter, he's kind of like Charles Oliveira in that way. He's had the mental issues. He's improved upon it. He could still kind of get a little dicey there in the hooker fight in the first couple of rounds. We kind of saw that he had to dig deep and push through, which is a great sign. The fact that he was able to push through a lot of those moments is a really great sign because it shows that he's not going to fold. However, uh, the fact that he was in those spots in the first place is an extremely worrying thing because he, when he is not at range parity, parity or range advantage, reach advantage, is when he has to close distance uh, across these larger spaces. And that's kind of where he struggles to close it, uh, to get those distances. Uh, he'll kind of like shift across space and his chin will be right in the middle there to be targeted. And that's something that's going to come into play later. But uh, I'm going to pass it off to, um, who am I going back to, Sharam? Okay, so I'm going to pass it off to Sharam. Also, uh, Poirier's grappling, while good, is not amazing. And I don't think it'll come too much into play here, unfortunately. Uh, right. So uh, while I said McGregor was kind of closer to the usual softball archetype, um, I think Poirier is a little bit more unique. The best parallel that I can think of in a broad stylistic sense is someone like Robbie Lawler, uh, in that while southpaws tend to be a little bit more rear hand focused, I'd argue Poirier is, his calling card is more of his lead hand, which uh, we saw in the Max Holloway fight and in several fights since then and before that. Uh, he's a very good southpaw jabber in terms of using it to draw out reactions. His counter right hook is something that gave Max Holloway no end, uh, no shortage of problems and that he was able to keep Max Holloway from like really getting into combinations with that right hook. Uh, he's a fantastic combination puncher on the inside and his defense is, I'd, I think it lies somewhere between overrated and underrated in that there are a lot of things that he does very well, uh, but the, and it isn't as reliant on distance as that of a lot, a lot of fighters, especially Southpaws such as McGregor. Uh, but it's also kind of janky and weird in a way that hurts him at certain points, we saw against Eddie Alvarez, Alvarez able to get in on body shot entries to go up to the head. Uh, Dan Hooker did the same thing in the early rounds. I don't think it was like a mental thing for Poirier there. I think it was Dan Hooker fighting a, a pretty crafty fight early uh, to get to Poirier's head when he couldn't otherwise. So that's one way in which Poirier's defense isn't the best. And it's kind of pertinent here against McGregor, although we'll get into that later. Uh, the shifting is an interesting question because I think Poirier's ability to shift and combination punch so well is something that... It's helped him a lot against opponents with strong distancing. I'm thinking of Dan Hooker and especially Max Holloway. 
because both of those guys are pretty good at managing the distance in front of them, and Poirier was able to penetrate it pretty routinely with the shifting combinations. But the issue there is what happened in that second round with Dan Hooker and kind of the issues that I think people think he's solved completely since he got wrecked by Michael Johnson, which is that uh, his positioning in the pocket is some, it gets away from him. It gets away from him pretty easily, both in terms of regular combinations and in terms of what he does when he's interrupted in the middle of a shift. For instance, he was trying to shift in on Dan Hooker in round two and Hooker kind of stood his ground, countered with a combination and Poirier was just standing there square and narrow. Uh, that's a risk when you shift instead of, you know, covering distance behind your stance, but it also lets him do, do it very quickly and his power lets him, uh, you know, it bails him out. That's one thing that uh, both McGregor and Poirier have in common. It's a lot of things they do. Uh, they're bailed out more than they would otherwise by their ability to just hit insanely ridiculously hard. Um, in terms of his uh, Poirier's combination punching and stability to push his opponent back is fantastic. He's very good at levering, uh, lever punching to push his opponent back. We saw that in the Eddie Alvarez fights. Um, I think Poirier is, he's not a very defensively focused fighter, both in the larger strategic sense and in terms of like skill wise, but he's also proven very difficult to beat just in terms of like heart and durability and cardio, which is one place that I think he has a, a market edge over his opponent here. If you look at a fight like Gaethje, he wasn't defensively the best, uh, but there were times where both his offensive depth and his ridiculous durability bailed him out of just getting killed by one of the better versions of Justin Gaethje we've seen. So, yeah, I mean, Poirier is, I think he seemed weirdly vulnerable in a lot of his fights because, you know, he gets hit a lot. One, he has all these weird little ticks that he does where he's like, you know, he seems more, he seems closer to a person in the cage than a lot of other fighters do. Like you see his personality in there and you're like, oh, this guy is just going to break because he's not, you know, really hard. But he has proven in the hooker fights and, or in the hooker fight and the Gaethje fight that, it's far from that. Uh, so I'll pass it off to whoever's next to talk about uh, the diamond. Anton. Yeah, I like those notes there from uh, what both of you guys said. I also uh, agree with what Ben said uh, at the end of his, but I'll, I guess we'll save that for the next section. But uh, as far as the striking goes, it's really interesting because um, you have, you know, Poirier, and I like the, the notes as far as the rematches, by the way, I believe it's 2-0 uh, rematches. Poirier is, whereas McGregor, of course, just one and all right with the uh, Nate Diaz uh, rematch under his belt. So not, you know, the biggest sample sizes uh, as far as adjust adjustments go. Um, and as far as strategy goes, you know, I believe you guys have spoken about it too, whether it was Poirier specifically with the Khabib fight or American top team, which is a great camp with a lot of great facets to it. But as far as strategy and game planning go, perhaps not, not their most like well-known facet. Right. Um, so that's kind of up in the air. So I don't want to go too deep down that path. Um, I will talk about uh, one of the things that I think people would be calling for Poirier um, to do more, which I found in interesting, which, you know, um, you know, uh, not talking too much about strategy, but more his game when he faces other Southpaws, which is leg kicks or calf kicks. Again, I kind of planted the seeds of American top team. That is a, you know, that's a, a a camp that is, I don't know if they're credited. A lot of people credit Benson Henderson and of course, American top team. If you ask Dan Lambert, he credits Wilson Govea, who was landing regular leg kicks back in the day, gassed. Um, and they ended up being calf kicks. And they noticed that even though Govea was gassed, that, that his kicks that were inadvertently going to the calf was doing more damage. 
that's according to Dan Lambert. Y'all can ha- hammer it out. But I, what's relevant to Poirier is I found interesting is that when he's fought other Southpaws before, when he had tried to be strategic, and this is while he's still under the American top team regime, when he fights Jim Miller, for example, like his plan, he admits is to go and get Jim Miller's legs. And, you know, Jim Miller um, kind of gets him. And since then, it's more like kind of what was mentioned by Shuram, which is like more of a, a, a focus on the counters. Uh, ben talked about it too, a focus on the counters as far as up top, rather than maybe capitalizing on his own kicking offense, he's working around it, right? And still within his style, which is totally smart and much more conservative and efficient, um, et cetera, and et cetera. You know, now you mix in, yes, when he does get a guy hurt, of course, we all know, like his shifting and his levering, his ability to lever punches and like do all these really great things in that regard. But what really struck me, and you guys mentioned it too, was the hooker fight um, is that, you know, there are certain things that for all these improvements that we love to talk about um, that were mentioned here is that there does seem to be a little bit of mainstay problems. And we saw that in the first couple rounds there. Um, and again, not to be too reductive because it was either the last one or the one before I was super reductive with my analysis. Yeah, it was the Ferguson and um, Oliveira fight. I was super reductive with my analysis. People don't change. And then they can change even late into their career. So I don't want to make that mistake. But as far as what I see, um, that's what I see. I see the improvements you guys see, particularly in the boxing and making that work for the rest of his game and how that works against his opponents. But there's just still a lot of mainstay um, problems from that original brawling Dustin Poirier that crashed the scene from the WEC days. Yeah. Really, really good breakdowns, guys, and I appreciate it because I don't <laughs> don't have all that information off the top of my head to do the same thing. Uh, yeah, the Dan Hooker fight for for Dustin Poirier was simultaneously encouraging and discouraging. Um, discouraging because he his brain fell out of his ears, you know, at some point, and he just decided to do ridiculous sloppy things and it's not like he's always like in perfect position or doesn't overextend or doesn't get messy but dan hooker tricked him into having like one of the craziest sloppiest fights i've seen him be in in a very very long time um just it's just like swinging crazy in the pocket you know falling over uh just <laughs> wild wild stuff uh, usually people talk about in terms of like poison making bad decisions they talk about the guillotines uh it first came up in a big way against Eddie Alvarez. Eddie Alvarez kept shooting on him. And every time Dustin Fourier full guard in the guillotine in between rounds, uh, Mike Brown was like, stop doing that. And he said, no. <laughs> so he kept doing it. Uh, I, I admire it. I admire the dedication. Um, but yeah, obviously that came up again against Habib. Uh, I don't know if it's because he can't defend normally or if he's just very committed to doing it this way um i don't think connor's going to shoot a double on him so it's probably not going to happen but him and hooker ended up shooting on each other a bunch and i'll get to this later when we talk about hooker versus chandler but oh my god that fight was horrendous uh, when they started wrestling it was, it was really bad they were both sloppy and gassed so it's hard to judge too much but it was just a a, a beautiful mess of a fight if you were just watching for entertainment value awesome fight if you're watching for Dustin Poirier to be like a better version of himself or like better than before uh it was a nightmare it was a total nightmare but you know it was good in spite of all of that he took all the shots 
he took a bunch of shots. His chin looked good. And he is, his cardio held up. He definitely out-cardioed uh, Dan Hooker, who um, doesn't have bad cardio, but he's he's capable of gassing. Um, ben thinks he has bad cardio. <laughs> he has average cardio, but yeah, Dustin gassed him. So the attributes are still there for Dustin Poirier. Just got to get the brain back in his head, and hopefully we can we can work on some things. But yeah, like that stuff doesn't seem super prescient for a Conor McGregor fight. I'm, I'm going to jump into it just because we're here. Um, we're at that point. It doesn't seem super prescient. Um, you know, it, it's it's like, okay, how can Dustin improve on, on the first fight? Because Conor hasn't changed enough to not pursue the same exact strategy. He is, he is the same enough where there's no reason he can't do that again. Uh, for Dustin, it's like, okay, how do you control range? How do you control exchanges? Do you lead or do you let him come at you? and try to work around your guard and pick his shots? Probably not. Um, I think Dustin Poirier needs to pressure Conor McGregor. I don't know if he doesn't need to do it like right out the gate. If he can find a way to you know, make it a fight and make Conor work, uh, I would say with a kicking game, but you know, as we talked about, his kicking game is kind of hard to read. Um, but if he, can, if he can get ease into the fight and just you know, figure out the distance, figure out you know, the shot selection, and then start to pressure uh, behind combinations and, and you know, figuring out what kind of guard McGregor can be using, what kind of counters he's looking for, you know, how he's going to manage distance. Uh, like we saw in the Gaethje fight, if your guard is static, uh, Dustin's amazing at, you know, poking around it and, and setting you up and, and you know, timing uh, his combinations to land big. It's really beautiful work. And then when he's in that comfortable pocket range, usually when he's composed, uh, he's pretty good at getting out of the way and, uh, you know, feeling pretty good in those pocket exchanges. Of course, there's the Dan Hooker fight where that was less good. And then like the Michael Johnson fight before that, where he got flatlined in the pocket. So, I, you know, Conor McGregor is absolutely capable of hurting him really, really badly in the pocket. But uh, Conor doesn't like infighting. Um, he's a good clinch fighter and now he's, he's got those uh, shoulder strikes, but that's not sustainable long term for him. He doesn't in elbows. He doesn't like doing that a lot. You know, he, he goes super hard in those positions because he wants you to go away. Um, if you remember, like, the Nate Diaz rematch or, like, the Nate Diaz one fight, that was Diaz walking him down, uh, you know, behind, like, a high forearm guard and just making him keep throwing and, and Diaz just making sure he didn't take a lot of it super clean. Of course, Diaz did take a lot of those shots super clean, but he's a chin bully and a cheater, uh, so it didn't matter. Um, so that's not, like, the exact strategy that Dustin Poirier can pursue. Like, I believe in his chin. It's a good chin. It's probably better than it was at featherweight, but that is a huge risk. And just judging by how Connor looks, you know, we can't really, don't, we don't have anything else to judge by. Uh, I think he's really prioritizing his strengths with the strength and conditioning program. He has like big old, big old shoulders and biceps uh, working on his chest, just like he worked on his upper body a lot. Um, I think it's partially just marketing and, you know, you know, posing for his business, trying to look good and cut and uh, as, as aesthetic as possible. But it also tells me he's probably not building himself for endurance and he's not prioritizing the long game here. He's going to try to get him out of there quick. Um, so if you're Justin Poirier, do you try to be smart off the back foot and stop him from hurting you really badly when it comes at you in the beginning? Or do you take it to him when you risk being countered big. So that's, that's the predicament that he's in. And that's why everyone's picking Connor because that's a really tall order. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to think about what is it going to look like if let's say Connor does come out hot and Dustin, who doesn't have the best ring craft, uh, can't stop him from pushing him backward. But he uh, he he makes the most of the situation. Maybe he takes a few shots. Maybe he gets rocked a little bit, but he survives and you know they clinch a little bit and he uh, he ends up okay. And Connor has to you know, reset and take a breath and uh, approach it a little differently. That could happen. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Is he automatically going to win if he survives like the opening exchange? No. Um, but that's when he can start to get into his game a little bit more, right? That's when I can expect him to you know, start working behind his lead hand, which I think is his big advantage in the fight. Uh, Connor does not have a lead hand, but Dustin's a superior. Uh, it's more versatile. He can use it for his entries. Uh, so you were talking about, you know, having to shift to, to cover range. Uh, I think he, uh, that's something he'll probably pay attention to. And I think, you know, when Connor starts to get later into fights, he gets a little flat um, and it's a little bit easier to get into his range and he's not as sharp of a counter puncher. And uh, I think you can actually see that with the Khabib fight, you know, it's hard because the state that he's in in the second and third rounds when he's a little gassed and, and things are different, the third round, especially, um, okay. You can't say he's going to get him exactly that tired uh, from whatever striking fight they're going to pursue, but it just shows, you know, what the, the next, the next lower gear looks like for Connor. Um, and I think I could totally see him, uh, you know, poking through Connor's defenses and hitting his body, um, and starting to turn the fight in his own favor. And here's this, here's this. If he can pressure him, if he can get him on the cage, he could wrestle. Dustin Poirier can wrestle on the cage offensively. Um, <laughs> that's the that's definitely the strong suit of his wrestling game um he's leaned on it a bunch of times in tough fights uh most notably like the jim miller and, and joe duffy fights um that's been there for him but he has to be able to get those guys to the cage i, I don't trust him as an open space wrestler whatsoever uh offensively or defensively and connor i think he he has a wrestling game i think his first layer his instincts as as a defensive wrestler are decent but i mean like you look at the Nate Diaz fights and, you know, Diaz is like getting in on doubles in the cage, you know, later on and uh, making them look bad. And I think, you know, he gets lazy and sloppy and his form falls apart when he gets tired. Uh, Dustin, of course, gets lazy and sloppy at other points. Uh, but, you know, he, he is he's built for that. <laughs> That's what he does. So I can totally see how Dustin Poirier can win this fight. And uh, I said I was going to do this just to manifest the win. So just for the manifestation of the win, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to pick Dustin Poirier. Um, maybe a decision. He probably, I don't think he would finish him, but I think maybe uh, this fight gets a little messy and, and that's kind of where Dustin Poirier lives. So I'm going to go ahead and pick him. You know, why not? Uh, totally possibly he gets knocked out in the first round or two, but uh, I don't know. I'd like to see what happens later. So I'm going to hope for it and I'm going to pick it. How about you, Dan? I love the balls of the Poirier pick. Um, so I'll kind of, pick up from that as I give mine uh, to a pathway for Poirier. I teased the leg kicks as far as two things I think people are going to call for on surface level to somewhat below surface or whatever. Just the general call will be wrestling and leg kicks. I don't think wrestling will have play because I completely agree with Ed as far as he has to get his opponent pushed to the cage and the big cage and Conor McGregor's footwork and countering ability. I think that that's a big ask. He's going to give away way too much. Um, and may play into that early, those early pitfalls, if anything, if he tries to get after that early and doesn't allow it to appear, I guess, or semi-organically is the word. Then the next would be the leg kicks. 
and again, we've seen it not only reversed on him, and he's, you know, he, he's definitely vulnerable himself. That is Poirier to the leg kicks. You know, we've seen, yeah, sure. We've seen a calf kick change the course of a fight. We've also seen, you know, the Henry Cejudo's of the world, you know, come back from calf kicks and whatnot. So I don't know if I'd, I'd be really too even uh, dependent on that. Although I do believe that leg kicks and range attacks would be helpful because I think that trying to counter and turn it around, a la like Max Holloway, obviously Max and Connor are different fighters, but I think that would be Poirier's best chance because of that check right hook. Uh, you know, we're mentioning it, uh, stifling, um, I forget which match, uh, it was a southpaw versus southpaw uh, uh, matchup that one of you guys just referenced, but I was just thinking of Valentina Shevchenko versus Holly Holm, which was a southpaw versus southpaw matchup, and uh, I will pat myself on the back here, I called for the check right hook in my breakdown before that fight, that that was going to be the key punch, it happened to be so, because not only is it something that I, you know, you rely on as a southpaw to kind of stymie things up um, that seemingly works on both stances. Uh, but, you know, it, it's one of those things that you don't see there kind of lines versus circles. Again, McGregor can throw circles when we're talking about kicks, but he's more of a faint and straight line. Whereas, you know, I believe Sharon was pointing out, you know, whereas Poirier, he's more doing it off of volume shifting, which, you know, a, a more a, a risk risky uh, method obviously, right, as is shifting attacks and other things that Poirier does with his inherent aggression. Um, so there's the, there's a little bit of give and take there. But if Poirier can sit back, maybe be patient, sit down on those check hooks when McGregor commits or when McGregor thinks he has the lane, then perhaps he can survive, uh, surprise him there. Maybe even, you know, McGregor is, is durable. People forget, too. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't go away easily in that regard. Um, it's more of a cardio attritional thing, but yeah, if he rocks him just enough, then all of a sudden, Hey, that takedown we just talked about all of a sudden that starts materializing. Right. Um, so that, that, that is the, the, I think pathway for Poitier, but I'm going to pick McGregor in the first round because again, I, I was just thinking about the Southpaw South, uh, Southpaw dynamic. And I know a lot of practitioners and uh, even fighters shout out Zach McCoskey. He's probably the perfect person to ask this Zach, feel free to weigh in. Um, because I, I feel like if you're a Southpaw and you've obviously if you fought or at least competed and had some serious sparring and, and have, have serious sample sizes to pull from, I know y'all can understand me here, but for whatever reason, when Southpaws get with Southpaws, like I always argue, everyone always complains like, Oh, I got a pair with the Southpaw drilling and you get tired of hearing it, you know, every time in boxing class, you know, it's like, Motherfucker, Southpaws hate Southpaws more than y'all, okay? You, you Orthodox people need to relax. Us Southpaws hate Southpaws more than you, you do. Um, and, and not for drilling. For drilling, it's great because we, we finally get to drill without having to reverse engineer everything the coach is saying. But in a sparring sense, it's terrible. And one of the sh strikes that just feels so blind, it feels blind to me defensively against a bunch of different opponents, different stages of my you know practitioner, whatever F you want to call it, which is nothing sure. But also when I would throw it, even guys that I had no business hitting and would kick my ass in every other facet, which was most everybody, that shot against other southpaws was just something blind. And sure, McGregor in the first fight, he fainted out Poirier's defense before he hit it. Like, yes, there were things technically at play there, but there's just there's some kind of blind spot for that left hand in the southpaw for southpaw matchups. So to go against a guy like McGregor in that kind of a matchup and you're not going to be taking him off the feet in the open, like Ed said, you know, I got to go with McGregor round one. It's fair. It's fair, fair and kind. Um, it's just funny. I, I just I just heard it from your uh, your breakdown. 
for uh, Dustin's path. It's just really funny how often, like, maybe if he fainted, that changes the whole thing. Every single matchup is like, what if he did faints? <laughs> it's too much. It's too much to ask. All right, Shiram, you're up. Yeah, uh, I think, so I'm going to start out by saying I'm going to pick Poirier for a lot of the same reasons that Ed is, mostly to manifest it, but that doesn't work ever with me. So it's probably a bad choice, but it's also one that I'm going to stick with. Uh, that said, uh, just, you know, kind of uh, assorted observations, I guess. I think Poirier is going to struggle with the distance a decent amount in this fight, just because we've seen Poirier as, I think it was Ed who mentioned the ring craft issues for Poirier. I think the thing with Poirier is that he... He doesn't really have a clear image of what he wants to do in terms of ring craft. Like he pressures if you give him the, the front foot, but if you make him take the back foot, he's going to be like, okay, I'll take the back foot. And I think that's the issue that he had against, for example, Khabib Nurmagomedov, where uh, Khabib was, you know, I want to move forward and get you on the fence. And Dustin was like, okay, I'm going to have to outfight, just assuming that he's going to have to outfight and, uh, you know, working on staying long from there. And I think that's an issue for Poirier against McGregor, because as I mentioned before, McGregor is fantastic at, uh, taking an opponent apart against the fence. Uh, Poirier's guard is pretty good in that sense, but, you know, it's you, you don't want to give McGregor opportunities there. The counterpoint there is, I think, the Gaethje fight. But, you know, against Gaethje, Gaethje was fighting at a much shorter range than uh, Conor McGregor. Gaethje was able to, you know, walk forward with his high guard, kick Poirier up, and he was trying to play kind of a cruder version of the pressure counterpuncher game. But the difference is that Poirier could just jab, uh, get Gaethje's high guard up, flurry on him like, a lot, uh, you know, watching out for the counters, of course, but he's able to get those exchanges uh, to buy space. And I think the issue with a McGregor fight is that in order to create those exchanges, he's not going to have the jab there as accessibly because of the distance that McGregor enforces. Of course, the issue there for McGregor is that the distance is going to be naturally shortened in a close stance fight because, you know, the open stance naturally extends the distance, forces guys to cover it a little bit more, where, um, uh, Poirier might have the jab a little bit more accessible in a southpaw-southpaw fight, where, as Ed mentioned, the, the lead hand from McGregor, it's a little bit more of to steal something that our friend Ryan says a lot, an ancillary tool, uh, in that it's not a weapon in itself particularly often. He uses a throwaway jab here, a frame hand fighting a lot, but it's not something that's independently threatening in a way that Dustin Poirier's is. And I think in a southpaw-southpaw fight, it's one thing, I think Dan's right in that a lot of southpaws aren't particularly used to, you know, very accurate left-hand punchers, but also in a close stance, I think the lead hand naturally gains a little bit more prominence, which is why, for instance, like a southpaw, the left hand and the right hand tends to be a little bit more, um, you know, like step to the outside, hit the left hand is like the stock advice for a southpaw. And in contrast for a close stance, it's like jab the, to keep the distance. So I think there's a little bit of that in there and you, know, you, want, you want to attack the open side. And I think a, a better lead hand is going to help with that. But I think in general, if McGregor enforces the distance the way that we know he can, it's going to be on Poirier to shift safely to cover distance early. Now, the issue that I have is that I think McGregor's cardio issues have been a little bit covered for by his usual fast start because he's not generally going to struggle to put volume on guys early because he has such a keen read on what they're going to do. And if he's able to scramble them before he gasses, then they're pretty much not much of a threat to him either because the fight is over or because he's just laid so much volume on them that they're pretty much done and he has all the information that he needs. I think if McGregor is as rusty as I expect him to be off such a long layoff against the lead competition, like if you think about it like this, he's fought, it's been a year since he fought anyone. It's been twice as long since he's fought an elite opponent. And it's been twice that since he's actually figured an elite opponent out. 
And that elite opponent, of course, was also a, a relatively easy style matchup, but it's also something he like Eddie Alvarez was certifiably elite. And that's like, you can't really get better than that in terms of like an opponent that Connor beat, but it's still something to note that it's been four years since he's figured out an elite opponent. And I think if that fast start is compromised, we're going to be seeing Connor McGregor working inside a window with a little bit tighter margins than we're used to seeing because he's not going to be able to find the reads that he wants early. And Dustin Poirier, as we've saw, as we've seen, as we've saw, Jesus Christ, uh, it's late, as you guys should probably know. But as we've seen, uh, Dustin Poirier is one of the most conditioned fighters I've ever seen in MMA in like a really weird way. Like you see him gassing out sometimes like in the middle of a fight, like after round two uh, against Hooker, his hands were on his knees, but then it's like his blood just randomly turns to caffeine and he's just all the way there again. And I think that's one thing you could attribute it to heart, but it's also just a really, you know, boxer kind of cardio where he gets down and he just has absolutely absurd recovery throughout a fight. Um, I think given that I don't expect a fast start to show up, I think all of Dustin's technical issues here are going to be covered by just having a little bit more in the tank past like the seventh or eighth minute. And I kind of trust him to be there because I expect him to be competitive, both in terms of uh, what Ed mentioned, the infighting and just general pocket fighting. I think McGregor is going to be very equipped to uh, attack his entries. But when it comes to the combination punching on the inside, I think Corey is going to win that. He's a lot more diverse and he's he's just shown a lot more there uh, in past, you know, small two to three punch exchanges. So if it regularly ends up there, I think uh, McGregor is in trouble. And just if it goes long. I think that's one thing that uh, I think McGregor is working on margins here that he's not used to working with against elite opposition who aren't just going to lean into the first head kick that he throws. And I think we're going to see a tough fight from him. And as Ed mentioned, tough fights are where Dustin Poirier lives. So uh, Poirier, TKO round four, I guess. Um, ben, uh, your thoughts? I'm just going to mute myself there. All right. So <clears throat> uh, I guess the first thing to start with is that <clears throat> I think we've all mentioned that they're both better versions of themselves, um, much better versions of themselves, I would say. And the problem is, is that we've seen how this fight plays out already once. And if they're better versions of themselves, we might get a better version of that fight, but it's, it, it would be the fair assumption to make that we would see the same fight essentially play out. Um, one thing that to mention is that we know that Dustin, the reason the, the reason why he doesn't kick supposedly has to do with his hip injuries. I know that he supposedly has worked them out to an extent, but we're still not seeing him kick a lot. It, it is what it is. He's not a kicker, um, which takes away an important range tool because he's at a range disadvantage with the hands alone. And Connor is an active kicker. So that extends the range even further. So now we're at a, so Dustin's going to be at a range that he's already generally going to concede. And it's an interesting an annoying factor because in the first fight he threw eight leg kicks in the first couple minutes before that fight ended he threw a lot of leg kicks and they were landing every single one except for one landed and that was because he was just too far away and missed or something it's not like connor checked it and connor was doing his whole shtick where he nah, like, nah, it doesn't hurt me bullshit those landed clean they fucking hurt you're full of shit sorry i'm cursing a lot um <laughs> that's something that actually i think is a big problem that in dustin's development because of he's had to work around those hip issues it's an important tool for something that when you're going to be at a long range and you're fighting another Southpaw who's going to be, who has equal to or potentially more snappy powers, I would say it, not greater power because Dustin seems to have more stopping power, but Connor is more accurate and puts people down more than Dustin does uh, historically. 
so you're going to be fighting someone who's also going to be able to operate at a longer range, who also is much better at dictating where the fight takes place because he's a dedicated pressure fighter. While you're not really, you're kind of an all-rounder where you go, like you said, as the wherever the fight takes place. Oh, you're going to push me back. I guess I'm out fighting. Oh, you're going to let me come forward. I guess I'm pressuring you. And that's a problem, especially when you have a guy who is a fast starter uh, who's going to come out and push you back. So right off the bat, Connor's where he wants to be. Dustin is where Connor wants him to be. That's already a disadvantage for Dustin. Now, it, there is an, if Dustin is really going to game plan for this, there are ways to mitigate that, which I'll get to. Um, for Dustin, he's also kind of, when I said the mental thing, Saram, because you mentioned that you don't think it was the, ment- the mental issue. What I mean is, uh, I think this is what Dan pointed out, is that Hooker, I think it was Dan, Hooker was able to get him into a wild slot. No, sorry, Ed. Hooker was able to draw Poirier into a f- very sloppy brawl. And that's a mental lapse because Poirier is the more skilled fighter. And he showed that in spurts in the first couple rounds. And in the second round, he started to show it and then got drawn into that crazy exchange and it got hurt. Um, but in rounds three on, even though Hooker was starting to tire, Poirier was also just fighting much smarter and much more carefully, right? Like he flipped that switch again and then like he brought it back. If, if he can be drawn into that kind of fight by someone like Hooker, who, all listen, I'm not disparaging Hooker, a really good fighter, but he's not Connor, man. He's not nearly as good on the feet, both in terms of skill and also in terms of craft as Connor is. And I don't see from that perspective alone how Poirier is going to be able to get past that. Now to talk about what Poirier would, I think, in my opinion, have to do in order to beat Connor, um, because I'm the removing kicking from the equation simply for the fact that he just doesn't do it. I'm not going to say you have to do something you don't do. If he starts like kicking, awesome. That changes the complexion of the fight, in my opinion. If he's just an active kicker, great. What he does do is I think he throws those nice little, like they're not front kicks. They're kind of come out at a weird angle, but they're also, you know what I'm talking about? So I think he really does need hip surgery kicks. Yeah, hip surgery kicks. I don't think he can't, I think he cannot 100% concede kicking range to Connor. If he's just going to let Connor kick and not return fire, that's bad. He does have to throw kicks to the body. And again, with Connor's, you know, perceived gas tanks issues, you know, it's not going to hurt to hit him a lot in the body, especially because again, yeah. So there's that. I think he does need to use that. When Connor is going to come forward, if he's going to allow Connor to come forward, he's going to need to create need to create collisions near the fence. And what I mean by that is stay safe defensively, block your head. <laughs> really block your head. When Con- force Connor to lead because we do know that Connor wants to come that wants you to come to him so that he can land that step back left hand whatever it might be. His leading shots are usually those longer range kicks and stuff like that. If he could force Connor to lead with a big strike, he can create a collision that causes a clinch reverse because he'll be backed up towards the cage, get it to the cage and start to wear Connor down there. That I think is a viable option for Poirier to utilize. If he can, if that's his, something I think he should do. Um, the problem with Poirier's style is that he is really at his best again, considering assuming the mental game is there and he's on point he's amazing in combination the way he you know pokes around the guards the way he's able to land these just brutal shots he mixes in really nicely to the body as well when it's there um but connor's not going to be there for it 
he doesn't want to be in long exchanges. Uh, the last time he did it, he, like I said, blew his wad against Nate Diaz, and how did that turn out? He got choked. So I don't think Connor's really going to be interested in hanging out in the pocket with Poirier. He's going to be at the edge of pocket range, if anything. I don't think he, at the second he's in those kind of like closer than I can hit you, but you really won't be able to hit me. I think he's just going to back out. That will give opportunities to pour, for Poirier to pressure. When Connor's backing away, Poirier has to continue to force the issue. Not necessarily with his strikes. I'm talking about with his footwork. Because if he comes forward too aggressively and starts to like just wing punches like he did with Hooker, Connor's going to kill him. He's going to have to come forward smartly and just slowly but surely push Connor back if Connor's going to be doing that back away to avoid the pocket. Keep forcing that issue where we're still in pocket range, we're still in pocket range, we're still in pocket range. Keep forcing Connor back to where he's uncomfortable. I don't know if Poirier is going to do that. I think that if he's forced, if he's in pocket range, starts winging punches. Uh, <laughs> he's in pocket range. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, uh, if he's in pocket range and Connor starts to back away, one of two things will happen. Either Poirier will just let him or he's going to chase him and then Connor's going to kill him. I, I just, I'm afraid to say this, but I don't think Connor Poirier is going to do super well. Also, somebody mentioned something on Twitter once. <laughs> somebody we're making, said this. We're on, making jokes in the chat and distracting I, Ben. <laughs> it's really not helping, and there's a lot of Connor coming, and it's really not helping. Um, <laughs> somebody said that he does this program to try. He's been doing this program to try and increase his cardio. I don't know what exactly. Is that the McGregor called? fast I, thing? Yeah. I know I, way I, too I much about McGregor. It. Yeah, that's really, I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't know that. I know, I thought it was fast, but I didn't, I wasn't 100% sure. Uh, if it works, ooh, that's really a big problem. Because again, like you said, Poirier's ability to dig deep when he is tired and keep going is a real asset for him. If he doesn't have that against Connor and Connor can keep going, ooh, he's really screwed. Also, Connor's chin is ridiculously good. I, I mean, like, it's got to be at least like up there in terms of like A, closing in on S tier chins. The dude can take a shot. Uh, you don't eat full power Mendez counter punches on the jaw and just laugh at him without having an incredible chin. What uh, about Floyd, though, Ben? What about Floyd Mayweather? Floyd Mayweather is the hardest puncher in boxing history. So, I mean, that's really impressive that he lasted 10 rounds. Um, I, I, I Floyd apparently hurt his hands on Connor's jaw. It was really crazy. Uh, I got to go with Connor by KO. Late round one, early round two, I, or even just round two. I don't – I think the avenues to victory for Poirier are on such small margins that we're not going to be able to see him walk that tightrope, especially if some of the cooker was able to just pull him off his game. So, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely the reasonable pick. That's why people are making it. Uh, but what fun is that? <laughs> God, I want to be wrong. I yeah. cannot express that enough. I want that – yeah, I want Connor to lose. Speaking that. the game plan into existence, manifesting the win. That's what analysis is all about. The problem is you have to do it soon enough that the fighter will hear it and then not acknowledge that they heard it from you and then do it and then say, oh, yeah, me and my coaches came up with this and not say, oh, yeah, I was listening to the fight site panel and Dan Tom said I should do this and yada, yada. That never happens, but, you know, maybe one day. Um, if we start releasing our podcast earlier, maybe maybe someday we'll get credited with it with a game plan. 
I think uh, our goal our goal is to be thanked by a fighter in the octagon. <laughs> yes, I just, I just want to mention this one 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 time. Uh, but yeah, so that that's that fight. That's the main event of USC two fifty seven. Everyone's talking about it. A um, lot of unknowns going into it, which is always pretty exciting. And the biggest unknown is will Connor show up and look like trash? And that's please please. <laughs> Uh, if you're a Connor fan listening, I'm sorry. You know, you understand. No, we're not. We're you not. Understand we're why. not sorry. You know, you know what he did. So there you go. Um, yeah, about the uh, the fast conditioning program, he will do anything to avoid running. He does not want to run. That, that guy <laughs> hates running. So I, I can't blame him. Running blame sucks. Him. But yeah. you know, that's that's the thing you should do for uh, you know fight conditioning is you should run. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rover, we were, we were harassing Rover. Ben in the chat the whole time. It was very funny uh but yeah so that's that fight i'm looking forward to it i'm gonna be nervous nervous as hell but you know is what it is uh the co-main event is also making me freak out uh because it has it has such chaotic energy um uh, I'm, I'm worried i'm so concerned uh michael chandler michael Sh- chandler as uh i believe ryan wagner ryan is canadian and says his accent is ontario but i swear he says things like nobody has ever said them before um, and I can't believe no one called him out. Uh, thanks, Ben. Ben's complimenting my beautiful eyebrows. Uh, on on uh, Ryan's one of Ryan's videos about Nathan Corbett, he uh, he pronounces elbows like al- elbows, and he said it like a million times in, in the video, and no one said anything except me. I'm like, why is no one joining me in bullying Ryan? So, you know, if if there's anything to bully us about, just just go for it. Shiram gets disproportionate amounts of bullying in, in the YouTube comments. I think they're perfectly um, proportionate. Everyone's like, oh my God, Sherum's microphone. Oh my God, Sherum's audio. Listen, <laughs> when we're in these calls, I don't notice it. It seems fine to me. So we, d- we don't understand that there's a problem until after it's published. Everyone's like, oh my God, Sherum's audio. I think we can all agree that the only bullying of the fight site needs to be directed towards Matt. Yes, Matt Joya. Uh, Please go bully him. Unashamedly, you know, simping for Black Rifle Coffee every day. Uh, he really wants that, that Nazi money. And I don't know if he's ever going to get it, but he wants it bad. Uh, more than Vinicius Mojeda and his and his uh, and his tattoo. The guy that was really funny. Wait, what? It actually it actually is a black belt, but it's like it's ima- guns. It, yeah, it, they, it, 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 I thought it was a black belt, but they drew it like guns or something. It's the most two rifles most stupidest crossing, and like the the <laughs> ends have like a red like a red stripe on them, like a like a jujitsu black belt, and it says jujitsu oh, style okay. under it, and it's two guns. Oh, geez. We were debating this in the chat earlier. It's like, is his style of jujitsu? like guns just is he saying i don't need jujitsu because i have guns it's, it's very hard okay. to parse <laughs> almost it's, as hard as that one guy that fights out of stipe's camp who has like the, the comfer like that really german oh, tattoo yeah, oh, alexi kamer no he's not fat no it was the other guy who lost to the dude who had his butt hanging out against cyril gum <laughs> that is how that's, i contextualize every low ranking oh heavy uh, that's guy. um Oh God, a Tanner Bozer fought that guy. Hold on, hold on. Jeff Hughes, uh, yeah, it's Jeff Hughes. Jeff Hughes. Jeff, oh, Jeff yes. Hughes, right, okay. right, right, right. Yeah. Brazilian ass crack man is my anchor. Rafael Pasal. So anyway, if uh, Black Rifle Coffee wants to pay Matt Joya like a thousand dollars a month to have Black Rifle Coffee tattooed on his chest, I think he'd do it. Uh, <laughs> guy needs money. He's uh, desperate. Hell, I would do it. Jesus, yeah. dude, I'd do it. Sell my soul. I, I came this close back in the day. Me and the buddy Ernie back in the day, we came this close to getting a Chipotle tattoo because we heard if we get a Chipotle tattoo, you got free Chipotle for life. 
and we were getting a bunch of tattoos at the time. We're like, dude, let's get Chipotle food. And we found out, like, it was before uh, Snopes existed, so it was really hard to find these things out, but we found out it was not true. Oh. Very thankfully, before we could get the tattoos. So why, do you, why do you have Chipotle on your arm? Don't ask. <laughs> let's talk about fights again. Uh, so Chandler Hooker. Yeah, you guys, yeah. You guys, mute. You guys mute yourselves Pizza. so I can talk about this fight. <laughs> All right. That was fun, though. Okay. So how did I get on that? I don't remember. Anyway, Chandler Hooker is happening. Very chaotic energy, just like that segment just was uh, unplanned. <laughs> but yeah, this fight makes me crazy because uh, they both have a really good path just to destroy each other. Um, <laughs> they, they are both very vulnerable to the things the other one does. Uh, and that, that makes me so, so nervous. Um, let's start with Dan Hooker. He's a chin bully, plain and simple. He, he is a cheater with a good chin. Uh, it's not fair. If you, all you need to do, there's two fights you need to watch to prove this. You watch the Dustin Poirier fight. It speaks for itself. You're going to get the knockout against Gilbert Burns. The knockout, about, the knockout against Gilbert Burns is literally just Dan Hooker keeping his eyes open and just eating this combination of the pocket full force uh, and just waiting for Burns to be open and timing his own left hook and just chinning him and Burns goes down immediately. Um, so yeah, complete cheater chin. Like you, you shouldn't be able to do that. That's not fair. Um, that I don't have to have defense. I can just stand there and you do whatever you want to me and I can just wait for you to be exposed and then I'm going to hit you and knock you out. Uh, so he hits pretty hard. He knows how to weaponize his chin. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty unfair. He also used to be a size bully. He was at featherweight. What's he, was he 6'1"? Yeah. There's a, you know, lots of bullying qualities from Dan Hooker um, versus, you know, athlete bullying you know motor bullying from michael chandler just you know going full hulk smash on people for five rounds just like the most insane pace i've ever seen anyone keep it's not like the traditional cardio fighter either we're like oh yeah he's pacing himself well he doesn't pace himself well at all he just goes and he goes for pretty much the entirety of five rounds pretty much every time he has to go five rounds my craziest michael chandler moment is in the Eddie Alvarez rematch where round three, he's starting to slow down. And you're like, okay, he's starting to slow down. And then the beginning of round four, he jumps 10 feet in the air and throws a flying knee. And you're like, what is going on? And then he's going full tilt again. So you guys are both freaks, uh, absolute freaks. Uh, with regard to like career trajectories, Chandler's a little bit further down the line. Um, it's really hard to say if he's post-prime or not. People say that because uh, he got knocked out by uh, Patricio Pitbull, who is good Pitbull is what we call him. Uh, with the counter and his his leg got chewed up by uh, Brent Primus he got calf kicked and it like messed up his ankle or whatever and uh, what was funny was even after that happened he was still winning the fight <laughs> he got mad and started screaming and was still coming after Primus and was still beating him up and then they stopped the fight because his leg was falling off so these are two very ridiculous fighters this this fight has very ridiculous energy uh, so let's talk path to victory uh, so for Chandler he's a wrestler so people, I don't know if they forget that or what, but they're like, they never factor in Chandler wrestling people into the, the possibilities of how the fight would go. Like he's wrestled pretty much everyone he's ever fought besides the ones he knocked out really quickly. Um, he's a very good wrestler. So, you know, division one, uh, I forget if he was an All-American. He was, he was an All-American from Missouri. I wrote about it. Uh, I wrote two articles about Michael Chandler, actually. So I'm, I'm, real, I'm well-versed. And uh, yeah, he's got really nice craft uh so he pressures super hard which is harder to do in the circular cage in bellator um you know just because there are no corners <laughs> so people can just run around in circles so he has to get really really dialed in 
on his pressure and weapons, like, you know, round kicking and uh, left hooking, things of that nature. Uh, so he's good at pressuring people hard into the cage. And if you don't have good footwork, then he can just come at you with his, uh, his uh, rear straight, which is very powerful. And he throws it hard a lot and gets you back to the cage that way. Uh, so he's really good at wrestling in the cage, super strong chaining between doubles and singles, angling people off the cage, reshooting, coming up to body locks. Uh, just a very competent wrestler overall in that sense. His open space wrestling is also very good, and that's where he leverages his athletic type a little bit more because he's a very in-and-out, bouncy kind of footwork guy when he's not pressuring super hard. And that in-and-out motion really masks when he's ready to explode in and create his entry. Um, and it's not like he's timing like one single entry. He does it a lot. Um, my, my favorite is the uh, the Brent Premise rematch where he's got him in open space coming in and out, and he bounces out, comes back in, throws a rear straight to the body, does it three times in a row. And, uh, and the fourth time he shoots a double leg because, you know, it looks like the same motion as the, the body straight, but the entries all look similar. It all kind of flows together. So he has systems, he leverages his attributes. Well, uh, he's got dangerous striking weapons. He can get a little crazy. His form might not be perfect. Um, and that's kind of what troubles me <laughs> because Dan Hooker, like I said, it takes a lot to get him out of there. Um, so if Chandler's going to wrestle him, great. I think that Dan Hooker's ring craft is not amazing. Shouldn't be like a, a super tough challenge to get into the cage sometimes. Uh, obviously level changing on Hooker is very dangerous. The danger against the cage is more of a guillotine threat, I would say. The danger in open space is more of a knee threat. Um, the knee is what worries me the most, honestly, um, because Chandler doesn't disguise level changes that well. He doesn't faint level changes very often. The bounce kind of shows a level change, but he, you know, you can see it when he's about to come, come at a lower level. Um, but usually it's because there's another layer of that where, okay, is it a punch? Is it a takedown? That's basically it. Um, so even if the punch is going high body or it's a takedown, the motion looks basically the same. Uh, Sydney outlaw that his most recent fight, uh, he is coming down, changing levels like it's a body punch but he still throws it high and, and hits him in the face and knocks him out, uh, which, you know, that's cool. That's very crafty and it works well. That's a really bad thing to do against Dan Hooker because you don't want to show him a bunch of level changes in a row. And like, even whatever, whatever the next thing is, it's still a level change. So if I could have any confidence that he could faint those out a little bit more or, you know, show it and then come high and not duck face first forward, I'd feel really good. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but also, you know, he can pressure high with a straight right if he's not doing that that uh, space manipulation in the open. And uh, he hits the body, he punches the body, he kicks the body, where Hooker is pretty vulnerable. So I could see him beating him up on the feet. I could see him taking him down. As I mentioned previously in the Dustin Poirier section, uh, Dan Hooker is kind of a terrible wrestler. Um, he's a hard fighter to wrestle because of his striking style. I call that anti-wrestling, just the striking tools that he uses are very linear they're very level intercepting so it's hard to get to him to wrestle him but once you're in those wrestling situations it's not so bad um besides like guillotines really uh whereas Chandler is you know extremely competent in that area so uh it might come down to whose thing gets to the other guy first <laughs> and that is also a very worrying uh proposition because as i discussed i think hooker's attributes are designed to keep him in fights longer because uh, he is very very durable even to the body where he's very vulnerable uh edson barboza had to 
kill kill his body before we'd actually put him down uh so that stinks but you know even notoriously bad kicker dustin Poirier was kicking up his body and chandler is a very committed very forceful body kicker so um i could see just the explosion and, and the committed ferocious attack being a lot and getting hooker to the cage and opening up the wrestling and, and opening up a lane for like a relatively non-violent decision for chandler and i could also see him having that same thing and then ducking into a knee or eating a bunch of jabs to put him off base. And then he gets hit with something else and it snowballs. I could see a lot of things happening. Um, I just think that uh, just for the the sake of me acknowledging the level that Chandler's at, I'm going to pick him. Uh, even though I think this is a very random, crazy fight where a lot of things could happen and it doesn't make sense to be confident. Uh, I'm going to just pick Chandler just as a sign that I think he's good. And that he should he should win fights in the UFC. So that's that's the only reason. And I'm going to pass off to Dan, who has uh, trained a lot with Michael Chandler. So I'm sure he'll have a lot to add. Whose thing can get to the guy first? Can we call this podcast either whose thing can get to the guy first or Connor wants to come from Ben Ben's analysis? <laughs> I think that just would be a great name for this podcast. Fight site, UFC 257. Whose thing gets to the other guy first? Or fight night, UFC 257. Connor wants to come. Just throwing it out there. I'm a published author, Dan. I I choose my words very deliberately. (laughs) It's very true. I I, I like this matchup. There's a great breakdown of the matchup. Um, I I agree with a lot of what you said, particularly about the uh, in and out portion, as far as like, that's how um, Michael Chandler or Chandler, uh, full disclosure, I I did ask Ed if if Ryan was going to be on so I could get some Chandler action in my life. Uh, shout out Ryan, but uh, yeah, uh, Chandler, uh, he, he does go in and out. I think that works well for him. I do like that. He's been doing kind of a shift to Southpaw thing as opposed to like trying to fight outright from the position um, one, because leg defense, I think that's another thing, you know, is hooker going to kick at his legs, kick at his calves. Um, we, we've seen that before, obviously with Chandler being susceptible to that. So I think that having that option would help. And even if he doesn't do it a lot, and even if maybe they're suspecting it coming because he just got that left-handed knockout off Benson Henderson, right? Uh, it's probably not the worst idea in the world because something I noticed when I was watching tape ahead of the Poirier-Dan Hooker fight was that Hooker didn't face a lot of southpaws, but whenever anybody from any weight class, even like Maximo Blanco, like whenever anyone went to southpaw, they had their best exchanges in the fight, even if they lost the fight, um, clearly. They had their best exchanges whenever they were in Southpaw. Um, maybe that's a, a, a bad read. Maybe that's a read that aged out um, over time. Although, again, you know, it was a lot of the rear left hands um, that was kind of getting through for, uh, for for Poirier as well. So I wouldn't hate it if Chandler, you know, did those things. But obviously the knee is going to be the big X factor, right? Because he's the perfect height. Now, what I wonder about the knee, maybe you guys can comment on, on, on this as, 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 as uh, you know, uh, I pass it to the left-hand side here, but like maybe what if he used it more as a, as a check knee, like a Cerrone, right? Because not only is hooker of a similar length of Cerrone, but when I I've done the, the, the dive so much on Cerrone as we all have, right. We all know him fairly well, but one thing I did notice about Cerrone is unless he was facing a Southpaw, of course, right. Kind of allergic to those, unless he was facing a Southpaw, I noticed that the cutoff line was pretty much exactly five nine you can go through his entire resume and if you're f- below five nine and you're not a southpaw you were getting eaten up by the check knee 
you're above five, nine, you're not getting eaten up by it. And coincidentally, he's not throwing it as much. So, you know, maybe there's something there. Now, if Cerrone was the one controlling the Dan Hooker machine, I think he'd be all the, I'd be spamming knees all day because Chandler is generously listed at five, eight. They're, they're giving him the RDA treatment. Remember RDA was like barely five, seven. Then he goes up to welterweight the first time. They're like five, nine. I'm like, what the fuck UFC? They're like, okay, okay, okay. At least give us five, eight. Then RDA is back down to five, eight. The ever, the ever growing height of RDA. Um, they kind of do the same thing with Chandler. He's, 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 he's more closer to five, seven, like RDA. Um, but he's explosive as crap. Sorry. Go ahead, Ben. My ex-girlfriend uh, met him. They were doing a Bellator event in a, the Barclay Center. And yeah. she's like, oh, MMA guy. I'll go over for Ben and get a, like an autograph and picture for him. And he was super pissy about the fact that she had no fucking clue who he was. <laughs> it was really, really funny. He like got really annoyed, apparently. She told me afterwards, like, I, like, I thought he was nice. Then he started getting like really douchey about it. And also she took a picture with like... He is not 5'8". No way in hell. That nope. dude's 5'7 nope. if he's lucky in, hit, in yeah. lifts. Like, he's he's really not 5'7 even. Because she is 5'7". She was wearing, like, flats. And he was just barely, like, barely. Um, but, yeah. That's funny. My only ex-girlfriend experience uh, me, of one meeting a fighter when I wasn't there was I had an ex-girlfriend that met Dominic Cruz. And thankfully um dominic was a was a sweetheart because he told her like oh my boyfriend trained trained with the same coach as you uh neil at the time so but maybe that was why or whatever or it was a girl uh but you know don was like oh that's cool because you think like maybe he would be like a dick or something if you were to like maybe judge him off face value so it's funny how things actually work right um thankfully i'm on mike's good side but i've seen i've seen him uh snap a bit in practice and seen that bad side of him and um you know, I, I'll save stuff for the gym where it belongs, but yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's got a, he's got a side to him that I would not want to be on the other side of um, Chandler. Um, that being said, being said, I'm, I'm going to take um, Chandler in this fight. Uh, I do think there's just going to be a, a night and day speed difference. It's not just the speed, um, but the explosion. And, and I'm not talking about like that. I don't know if it's subtly racist or just lazy, that commentary trope where, you know, there's a gentleman of a darker skin shade. They tend to call him explosive, you know, for whatever reason, like, I don't want to mention names, but like Geik Molberg, maybe like they'll be like, oh, this guy's this guy's striking fundamentals. Johnson's fu- fundamentals have really improved under heavy hook. Yeah. And he's so explosive. Like that's always the addition. Like it just feels so borderline. Anyways, Chandler is actually explosive is what I would tell those people. Like, no, no, you're, you're, you're going by race science. It, if you want to actually use the descriptor properly, see Michael Chandler because that guy is explosive. Um, I'm glad I'm not a wrestler, Ed. Because I felt this guy in four-point position. Like, I literally just didn't want to even touch him for the start of the drill because he literally explodes, okay? And uh, I think it's going to be a big speed difference. And even though I feel like, obviously, Chandler is more likely to get knocked out on paper, I feel like the bottom is due to drop out, perhaps deceptively sooner on Hooker. Because for as wild as Chandler has been, if you look at, like, overall ring time, UFC time, striking styles, uh, relevant wars like I think Dan Hooker outdoes him in all those so even though he's got that ridiculous chin I always argue those guys have it worse because when the bottoms drop out they drop out hard um, that being said I think it's a it's a decision where Chandler wrestles the whole time can I I'm not, no I know it's Rostrum but the the other thing I would say is that Dyke Mold, Moldberg is actually how Mike Goldberg would introduce somebody with the same name <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I mean, when you said uh, if Cerrone was controlling the Dan Hooker machine, it kind of reminds me of a conversation that we had in the group chat about would Cejudo finish Shevchenko if he had Nunes's body, and it was uh, it was the weirdest thing I've ever heard because uh, one of our friends Sandra said that current size Cejudo could climb into Nunes's head like a gundo, so that's all I could think about through the whole thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really know anything about Chandler that Ed hasn't already said, and I'm eternally grateful that he's gone first on this one uh, on Dan Hooker. I think he's, um, so I've been very mean to him in the past and then Dan Hooker's coach has noticed, uh, which is something that I should probably apologize for because a lot of my hate for him has kind of dissipated with the beating he took off Dustin Poirier. Um, but Dan Hooker, he's kind of a, he's, he's an action fighter who doesn't really want to be because the way that he fights is like he wants to command the ring uh, and, um, you know, move around down the outside. Like I think the first couple rounds of the Paul Felder fight is kind of how he wants to fight people where he's able to just lead them around, walk around in a big circle, leg kick them, jab them. Um, and a lot of guys don't have good responses to either, and especially a change up between them. So he's able to do that, and he's able to, you know, get them shooting and hit them. I think one of the, uh, the things about his knee, I think he has a decent counter knee, but I actually like it more when he's using it to stand guys up against the fence. Uh, he did that against Poirier a couple times to lead into his combinations, and he did that near the end against Gilbert Burns. So that's one thing that's interesting. But the big issue with him is defensive uh, where I think the thing about Hooker's a decent counterpuncher. He has that nice, sharp uh, right hand that he hit on Gilbert Burns and even um, Felder a couple times on the counter. But once he counters, he's not really prepared for guys to eat it and keep punching with him, which is one way that Dustin Poirier got to him, where uh, he was able to draw out the counter jab of Hooker, for instance, uh, and then just cross counter it and keep punching. And Hooker was like, oh, shit, oh, shit, what, what do I do? Uh, but he's durable enough that it doesn't always matter. Uh, the other issue is kick defense, uh, where we saw against Barboza, but also um, Poirier was able to punch off his kicks pretty f uh, for free. He just didn't do it often because, as we mentioned before, he has those kicks where, like, you could really, really tell that he had hip surgery. And he kind of needs to hold the fence when he does it most of the time, or else it goes down to like the crotch because his hips just don't move that way, and he needs to like counterweight his body. So it was um, there were a lot of, there are a lot of concerning spots for Dan Hooker defensively that are covered by his uh, durability. Um, I think one thing, so most of the stuff I know about Chandler, as I mentioned, is from Ed, but one thing that I do remember from Danny writing about the Chandler Brooks stuff is that Chandler struggled with the jab of Will Brooks. Um, and that's one of a couple things that Dan Hooker does. He's a decent jabber in terms of like, he's a decently hard jabber. He's accurate with the jab. He's not like a particularly granular jabber that he's not going to like faint it or change the rhythm much, but it also didn't really take that for Will Brooks on rewatch where Chandler kind of walked into it to pressure through it. And uh, I don't really know. I don't have a read on it because I'm just too completely dumb on Michael Chandler. But, um, you know, what the hell? I'll pick Hooker just on uh, everyone else picking Chandler, I guess. Why not? This small interjection. One thing about the Chandler narrative that always bugs me is, you know, he got knocked out. So people are like, he's on the downswing. You know, his, you know, his career is, is turning away. He's getting better. <laughs> he's getting better technically. So I have... You go back and you watch fights from like, you know, 2013, 2015, stuff like that. And you're like, oh, he has these problems or he does things this way. And you watch his fights from a year ago and he has a completely different, you know, skill set. You know, he does a lot of different things. So I don't know if he remedied, you know, at that specific problem, but it's just something to something to think about, you know. And just uh, I my overall goal is for even if he loses is for people to recognize that Chandler was good, actually, and is good now. 
Well, you don't have to worry about me recognizing that because I actually think Chandler's a fantastic fighter. I just think Hooker's a really super odd matchup for him. Um, and there's also so much weird shit surrounding this. Hooker's coming off that absolute war with Poirier before they had either the war with Felder and then like two fights before that, Edson Barboza treated his insides like the worst punching bag that he's ever... Like, I've never seen Edson do that to anybody for as long as that fight happened because I guess only Hooker can take that kind of punishment without shitting himself completely. All of his insides coming out of the and into the outside, but he managed to. And even then, it was like one of those things where he still wanted to go and he just like keels over like unwilling it was crazy fucking hell uh so it comes down to this is hooker shot yeah you're welcome i I like to get graphic um uh i don't know where hooker's at durability wise if he's still there like if his durability is still there that's actually going to be a real problem for chandler because like i said hooker kind of feasts on people he can bully size wise and that's a problem chandler as good as he's been getting and I don't think he's shot, I, I, but he's obviously doesn't have like a bulletproof chin. The guy can be hurt, he can be rocked, he can be finished. Um, granted, it's been by people who, like Pinterchio Freire is not somebody to be ashamed of getting knocked out by. The Will Brooks thing is weird. Uh, I think everyone remembers that second fight. That was weird as shit. Also, he's had some weird injuries, like with that ankle injury with uh, Primus. Like, I, I don't... There, there was, there was this wrestler. Uh, the, um, he was um, the British Bulldog's brother, or whatever cousin, or whatever tag team partner. He was very small and put on a weird, like an enormous amount of muscle steroids, and it actually ended up destroying his body because his body wasn't able to handle that kind of muscle. I'm not going to say like Chandler's in that situation where his body can't handle the muscle, but I don't know if he's got that durability that he needs to. Um, um, and that's a problem against someone who, like Hooker. If he isn't going to be able to take the shots, yes, Dynamite Kid, correct. Uh, nice call. Uh, also, the drugs, an abusive relationship, but whatever, we're not going to get into that. Uh, if Hooker's durability is there, Chandler's going to get hit with some stuff he just can't avoid because of his that size discrepancy. That knee, that counter knee is going to be a problem. And like Ed, you pointed out, he's going to come he's going to change levels and i think that that's something that hooker is going to be able to plan for especially with city kickboxing behind him while hooker is not the best of that bunch he still is with that bunch and if you're training with izzy you're training with guys like Volkanovsky, you're training with the same coaches they're going to spot this kind of stuff and they're going to be able to take advantage of that and i don't know if chandler's going to be able to deal with that long term in the fight there's a very strong chance he comes out and absolutely blasts hooker because he's so much faster and so much more explosive. And he is really good at um, uh, disguising his entries, I guess, with those level changes to land the bigger shot. I, I, I've done this before where I've said, oh, the guy's got to be shot before. I did it with Aldo, and I thought he would, um, in terms of durability-wise. Uh, I've done it with Aldo, and, and, and I don't want to keep doing that. I'm going to go along the lines of, you got to show me that he's done durability-wise before I'm going to just bank on it. I did it with Max also in the first Volkanovski fight. Um, so I'm going to have to say that Hooker wins this probably by knockout, probably off a counter knee like he did with Gilbert Burns or Jim Miller. 
it's just one of those situations where I don't know if Chandler is going to have the durability to really hurt Hooker enough and get him deep enough. Because you did point out Chandler's cardio is incredible. And it is. And he can push an insane pace. Go watch that first Benson Henderson fight where he's just fucking owning Benson for five rounds. And then Benson just yells because he tries for the last 30 seconds of it. So it's just really fucking funny. So I got to go with uh, Hooker by knockout. Uh, and I'm really annoyed about it because I want Chandler to get like an elite matchup because I think he matches up much better against guys like Poirier, for example, um, than he does with someone like Hooker. So Dan, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I just want to add that uh, I like that call and that reference to that first Benson fight because um, I was curious. Like, I, I didn't think I gave Hooker enough credit, first of all, and just want to state my bias if it wasn't already clear with Michael Chandler. So it wasn't that I'm trying to discount Hooker or his team, which, like Ben said, made some you know great remarks from strategy to so on and so forth. And I could totally see Hooker snatching up a guillotine if he does what he did in that first Benson fight. Curious what Ed thought Ed, Ed's thoughts are, but when he shoots and gets his head lower on purposely when he doesn't need to, and you would do that repeatedly, right? Um, but I just wanted to state one thing that what Ed said as far as I think it's a great note that I haven't made it a point to talk about enough myself is that he is a different fighter. Not only was that a weird fight with the Will Brooks, right? Like if you look, it looks like he tries to do a hip toss and he gray Maynards himself and he goes forehead first, but Will Brooks hits him with like two right hands so fast. And there's not a camera picking up his eyes. You don't get that angle. So you can't see or even guess, which is all we would be doing um, where Chandler is at. So it's really hard to tell what happens there, but more specifically, this was a time where it, he was just trying to pressure through defense. It was as crude as it sounds, but you have to understand that there's three different Chandlers. There's the extreme couture Chandler where I met him. That's when he went, went through. Uh, I met him right when he was actually deciding on whether or not he wanted to even sign with Bellator. It was like the year before he, the, the tournament started and he didn't want to wait. And he's like, I want to fight now. And I remember having him that conversation with my coach on the mats. And he ended up deciding to stay and wait for Bellator. Goes for this run. Uh, my coach was Neil Melanson for grappling, but for boxing, he was working with Gil Martinez, who is a guy who taught me a lot. And I, I, uh, as far as far as boxing goes, and just made it a habit to roll with my crosses and do things like that. And you see Michael Chandler when he's fighting Patricky, uh, right? He's rolling under his crosses. It's like where the hell did all that go? Where this low-handed style go? It was when he went to Alliance. Now I don't want to crap on Alliance. There's plenty of coaches there. Rest in peace, Brian Keck, uh, wrestling coach, another coach that like Neil went from extreme couture to Alliance. So a lot of us guys from extreme couture, we would travel down to Alliance, not to follow Chandler who moved down there with, with those coaches, uh, but because we loved those coaches and we knew Chandler. So we would see and work with him and whoever else was down there. And it was a great gym. Okay. So I don't want to disparage. Uh, so I won't name any names, but if there, for whatever reason, you can't recall a good striking coach from Alliance and, or maybe you saw the same schlubby mitman. Uh, around, I, I, I'm just going to say this. It wasn't a coincidence and it wasn't a coincidence that Michael Chandler's standup went to absolute garbage. And I just, I, as a fan of his, a friend of his, especially at the time, just pulling my hair out, watching that happen. Like, why are you taking this damage? You don't need to take. And then he moves to Henry Hooft and say what you will about Henry Hooft in South Florida. But Henry Hoof, to his credit, I, I like that he's not, you know, trying to teach some like flashy technique. He's sitting there with fundamentals. He's playing the long game, um, stuff that doesn't really get you credit, you know, and, and the gen pop or the casuals so uh, ra radar. But that's the version we're seeing now. So there's three different versions. And in that middle version is when you have super questionable sample sizes on the feet, including the Will Brooks loss. I'm not saying he should be exempt from it. 
but it's something you need to keep in mind. It's a weird sample size. For sure. We, uh, speaking of Henry Hooft, uh, our, our friend uh, Simon uh, Amorium has a meme of Henry Hooft in like a trench coat and he opens up the coat and it says uh, functional kickboxing games for wrestlers. <laughs> and it's so funny. Uh, so yeah, so maybe Chandler's boxing isn't as like super dialed in as he was when he's an extreme couture, but that's, I mean, the meme is real. Um, he's a very functional kickboxer now. Like they've learned like normal, typical Dutch combinations and, and Chandler is a good student and he, and he hammers it. And uh, yeah, you made me remember that I forgot to talk about Chandler's guillotine, which is awesome. Uh, he does the, like the 10 finger guillotine and uh, he doesn't pull guard on it. He always sits there and puts his hips in and, and puts people on their back with it. So if they end up in any front headlock positions or if Hooker for some reason uh, shoots on Chandler, which it, it does, that doesn't seem likely, uh, but I would just like to see it because um, it'd be funny if he submitted him with the guillotine. Uh, all right. So that's that fight. Dan, if you have to go to the bathroom, you, you're free to go. Uh, and, uh, uh, so that's that's the main two fights in the card. We're not going to spend that much time on anything else. We've been doing this for a while already. Um, but this is just an opportunity for anyone to talk about fights or fighters that they find interesting in the card. And I'm going to send it to Ben first because I know Ben paid some special attention to uh, Armin Sarukian versus uh, Nasrat Hakparast. So the reason why I paid attention to this is because a lot of people seem to be excited about both of these fighters um, as prospects. And for good reason, they're both young, they're both very athletic, they both showed a lot of promise in a lot of their fights. Um, so it's kind of an interesting fight to push them together. I, I, I think that I'm gonna shorten it because we have been going for a little while. So I'm gonna try and keep this as brief as possible. Um, Sarukian fighting Oban Mercier is I think gonna be the key here for both of them. If Sarukian can take the right lessons from that fight, then he'll, he should be able to win or at least impose his game the way he does, which is going to be wrestling. He's going to want to get this fight to the ground. He's not going to want to fight on the feet with uh, Nasrath, despite showing some, some significant improvement in the Ramos fight. Um, he's still going to want to grapple with uh, Nasrat and take him out of his element. Uh, Nasrat, on the other hand, is going to need to take the lessons of what OAM did correctly in, those, in that fight and do that. So... The strengths of Nasrat are his hand speed and the fact that he's pretty, uh, he's got pretty good footwork as well. And when, I'm, but it's more that he prefers to, he has specific areas in the cage where he's going to be more comfortable, right? Uh, he's also got really good defense off the counter because he has these pre-programmed uh, moves is how I would describe it. It's, kind of, it's not that he has a defensive system. He has defensive moves that he has that when he sees something that triggers it, he's able to get out of the way and land these really big counters. And that's where he's most comfortable doing. He's like some pressure using feints uh, and his really fast hands. He lands that jab, you know, really, he doesn't have a lot of variance in the speed, but he throws it really, really fast, and really hard. And it works because most people aren't really good at doing anything against jabs. So that's a lot of the strength that he's, uh, uh, displayed in prior fights, like in this, in his fight with Munoz, uh, which was his most recent fight in his fight with Joachim Silva. He was using his footwork to pressure those feints to pressure. He really wants to draw out those strikes and land those counters because that's what he's best at. Uh, and again, his fast hands are really a big part of that because if he's able to throw faster than you and hit you, that's going to work. Uh, Aman Surukin, I hope I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly. Specifically in the OAM fight is where we got to talk because OAM had a lot of success using that southpaw double attack uh, where he would 
mix it up with the straight left and the kick and the knee to the body. Armour was able to catch a lot of those and get Alien to the fence, but he really wasn't able to do much against the, him with him against the fence. He really struggled to control him. There's an argument for OAM doing more damage in the fight. There's no argument. He definitely did more damage to Sarukian than Sarukian did to him. The problem was that most of the damage was in round two, the round where he clearly won. And then he got stuck on bottom for four minutes in this third round. And that kind of screwed him. Realistically, OAM was kind of lighting him up on the feet after that during that second round. And it, it was it's a problem because Armand's primary method of entry was he would basically blitz in with strikes to close the distance or kind of wait for the, the him to come to him. He would circle around the outside, peck away with strikes, and then kind of like you come in, then he meets you in the middle and gets that takedown. The problem is that even when he was getting OAM to like the, to to throw and catching the kick, he couldn't really do anything with it. And when he tried to blitz forward, he would get caught with that intercepting knee and it dropped him at one point. So the lessons that he needs to take from that OAM fight are very, like, it's important. He, he did see, we did see some improvement in his footwork and his ability to draw strikes to get him um, in, the, in the Ramos fight to get him to come forward so that he can land these um, reactive doubles and reactive shots. Probably he was still using those blitzing entries. He's a little bit more careful with how he did it. Um, he doesn't want to clinch and get takedown, so I get it. Uh, but against Nasrat, the problem is, is that Nasrat is not nearly adept at kicker as OEM, at least historically. Uh, if he learned to, if they watched the OEM fight and they really, really took those lessons and they're like, we're going to really work on getting your kicking game, your southpaw double attack is really going to be something that we're going to focus on. Armand's really going to have a problem, I think. So. I will pick Nasrat because seems like the type of thing that uh, Faraz might pick up on and they might just do it. So I would say that, uh, and Nasrat's takedown defense is generally pretty good. I, I don't, it's not perfect, but he does show some pretty uh, good takedown defense, at least in his most recent fights uh, with Munoz, for example, he stuffed seven out of eight takedowns. And the first takedown he got caught with was literally the guy just blast doubled him like, right off the bat and he got right back up so i'm gonna go with nazarat i don't know if he'll knock him out surrogan is there to be hit but he's super 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 tough so i'll go nazarat decision i think it's going to be a really interesting fight if if we see them make the right adjustments that's what i'm going to be really really interested in one of these guys as prospects or both hopefully both sweet does anyone else have thoughts you don't have to if you do have thoughts on Saruki and Hawk for us, I'm, I'm ready to hear them. Uh, I'll just say that I, I hate the matchup because I love both guys. Nice. And it's just a classic what they do to me at lightweight. Whenever I get excited about guys, they're like, let me just, let's just match them together. And I'm like, crap, man. And, and I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, Perhaps you know. Sorry, sorry. You can get my, my latest guy gets his uh gets his kind of prospect uh, at least in the UFC. Their uh, hurdle uh, delivered to him here, but uh, I haven't researched the matchup enough. Like I I looked at this Alex Munoz. I, I have no recollection of Hack Brass's fight with Alex Munoz. I know I covered <laughs> Munoz the Contender Series and wrote about him too. I have no memory of that fight, so I, I have nothing to say aside from I dislike it because I love both guys. I just think they're neat. <laughs> Sharon, what about you? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm not attached to any liquid prospect except Demiris Magulov because only one can succeed and it has to be him, but it also definitely won't, so I'm already sad. But yeah, I think I like Hack Press a little bit in this matchup. I think um, Sarukin is, I believe he lost around to Davy Hamosh on the feet, or at least he came close to it, which was kind of not good. Um, Nasrat, uh, his resemblance to Gastelum makes me be biased against him from like, the very start. <laughs> Because Gastelum annoys me so much. Like he's he's like the same reasons Cody annoys me, Gastelum annoys me. But no, Demir will never be champ, by the way. But I think you know, Nasrat is kind of like a Gastelum who has defense and is craftier with his footwork, uh, at least on the front foot. Um, he can. Pr- I, I actually really like how he took the takedowns away from uh, Munoz, where he would jab in and turn that into like a little frame to just stuff the takedown like from the start without getting letting Munoz get some drive on him or uh, threatening the uppercut off his hooks, which would give um, Munoz some pause. But then again, Munoz is also kind of like a very one-note, uh, dogged wrestler. So that's another thing. I mean, I'm not really, I don't really have a read on the matchup just because I don't really think that highly of Sorokin and haven't watched a ton of him either. I mean, basically every wrestler struggles with OAM, so that's not something to like really take away from someone for. But like OAM is low-key tricky for like most of the guys. I actually thought he beat Alex Hernandez on first watch. So there are a lot of guys who would struggle with that kind of archetype. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a bigger fan of Hack Perez, and I hope he gets it done. Sounds good to me. Uh, anyone else that you guys are particularly interested in on this card or a matchup or, you know, something else you, you think people should look out for? Muzar. <laughs> Go for it. No, I don't, I don't have many smart things to say about Muzar. He's <laughs> one of those TMT guys. Uh, that uh, Ed and Ryan love a lot. And I love him too, but I'm not as smart with them. Um, I really enjoyed his performance against Grundy where he jabbed him up uh, after an initial scare with that. I believe it was either a Darcy or an Anaconda. I'm not the grappling guy, so Ben is going to have to clear that up later for me. But um, yeah, Movesar is pretty fun. Uh, there were, uh, he's, I, I believe in the Barzola fight, the comparison was like kind of a shitty Peter Yen, which was... Uh, pretty dispelled because he's not shitty at all, but pretty much everyone's shitty compared to Peter Yen. He just has like some stylistic similarities with that pressure, high guard, uh, jab, and like kind of the way they move. So, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward. I don't think Nick Lentz is a particularly compelling matchup for anyone good at this point, but, uh, you know, moves are getting to dunk on someone who was in Nate Landwehr is always <laughs> good with me. Yeah. I like um, him for wrestling reasons, but also that he's jabby and body kicky, which is great. Um, yeah, there's some things I just quickly want to shout out. One, Jessica I, Bulletproof, uh, is going to be making uh, her appearance. Um, I don't know why people aren't asking how she's doing. I think it's really important for them. I've been wondering for a while how she's doing. Everyone yeah. asks who is, is she Jessica okay? I and not how <laughs> is Jessica I. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like that, that, uh, to be fair to Jessica, she gave us one of the most memorable MMA moments Um of all time with that attempt to get the crowd to go here we go something here we go here we go evil here we go yeah that dumb woof, shit woof. which <laughs> you better know that the crowd's gonna do it if you're gonna do that holy shit uh matt Favola versus uh ottoman azaitar is either gonna be really fast knockout or fun as hell because Favola is generally tough as nails so if he could like eat the shots of azaitar that could get fun real fast um rebas rodriguez honestly it'll be fun like rodriguez has garbage takedown defense but throws a million strikes and rivas is a pretty good fighter it seems like so that should be interesting uh carlos jr if he doesn't gas out in round one again 
I mean, he should be able to beat Brad Tavares. Uh, I actually really like Brad Tavares. I think he's one of the most underrated middleweights that goes around. He's kind of just solid everywhere, but his durability seems to be going. Um, I think that this card is actually really solid. Uh, Pena versus McMahon. I'm not interested in the fight. I just really want Sarah McMahon to win. I really do. She's so nice. Guys, I've met her. She's so nice. She trains at Marcelo's. She's a sweetheart. Doesn't seem to actually be a fighter. She just seems to be doing fighting. Is that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Because it feels like she's always winning the fights till she gives up a sub, and that's going to make this hard fight really hard to pick for me because I am not uh, high on on Pena. So I don't know what to do there. And I feel like I gave full disclosure. No one on the junkie staff picks, which haven't come out yet, um, picked Jessica. I, so I went in and changed my pick. Uh, from Calderwood to Jessica, I. <laughs> so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go support uh, I'm gonna support Jessica, and uh, last thing I'll say is um, uh, yeah, Azatar versus Frivola. I pick Azatar, but I kind of want Frivola to win just to see if he can make it out of Abu Dhabi alive. Jesus Christ! Okay, uh, <laughs> people need to Google why he said that. Uh, Steve Rola. Oh God. Uh, first of all, I'm actually picking I because Calderwood just generally doesn't do well with people who are willing to wrestle her. And Calderwood is also really slow and a slow starter. And it's not a good thing to be against someone who's going to try and take you down. Uh, Khalil Rauscher Jr. fighting Marcin Procneo is like the UFC going, for the love of God, Khalil, fucking knock this dude out. It's like the easiest person we can give you. Fucking do it already. Uh, that's another low-key so bad. <laughs> Real quick, that's another low key person I got to uh, I, I got to name drop too, Khalil, just because I knew that this kid since he was like overweight, three hundred pounds, and we were at the same hardcore shows together, and he was just some big kid in the pit that I really tried to avoid amongst other <laughs> big kids in the pit. But so it's so always cool to see him. I'm like, oh crap, he's a fighter now. Oh, yeah. awesome! Uh, and he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy, Loki. Two more things to shout out: Andrew Sanchez might win, but also might gas out in the third and die. Um, and Amir Abazi, we interviewed him. He is an excellent grappler, super nice guy, smart guy, and he made a lot of improvements after his only loss. Uh, I don't know a lot about his opponents, unfortunately, so I can't really break down that matchup, but I really, really would like to see him get another win. He's a really exciting flyweight. Make sure you guys send him some love, support him, and tell him that the fights I sent you because uh, guys seems to be doing things right. I'm looking forward to the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know like one thing about his last opponent, which is that, well, I know two things. One is that he loses a lot. And two is that he looks literally like a baby. Maybe want him to win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, that was going to be my two notes is that he looks like, like, I don't know if Jim Norton ever toured Kazakhstan and impregnated a woman, but he looks like half Jim Norton, half Kazakh baby. And not only does he lose a lot, but if you go watch the fights that he loses that are like an FNG, He's actually getting the wins. Like he's going into like Russian hometowns. Like like it was almost like he's being brought by the loser. If you look at his like the setup to the way the commentary is talking, and then like I'm like I'm pretty sure he lost like at least four of those rounds. Like maybe he won two rounds if you're being generous. And he's like getting like 49, 46s from judges. I'm like dude, this guy is like gonna pull upsets when you don't think he is. But aside from being durable and frustrating, he is Kazakh Jim Norton. He also beat Ali Bagatinov. So that's he beat Ali. Uh, he beat Ali. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Cool. Um, this has gone on for a long time. It's been Correct. lovely, but I fear that a long runtime will scare people off from listening to it. So we're going to end it. 
uh, we're gonna end it but with with plugs. So first of all, uh, this, you know, this is happening. <laughs> this is uh, staff predictions, not to be confused with staff picks, which is different. Uh, this is the panel. It is a podcast. It goes on YouTube and other platforms for podcasts. Uh, but there will also be an article for staff picks. And we tried to get Zach Makovsky on this one, but he's training like a loser. Um, Zach Makovsky will be writing in for the staff picks article. Um, so I'm excited about that. So the article will be out before the fights. <laughs> I, can't, I can't promise a day. It'll be out before the fights. Um, and then Sriram and I will be doing the MMA podcast, trying to record tomorrow, and then we'll see if it's out. Hopefully the same day, probably. It'll, probably everything is going to be out Friday. Um, and then uh, things that are already out, I published today, uh, Wrestling for MMA, and Dan already listened to it somehow. Uh, I don't know how he does this. Uh, but yeah, I published it. I talked a little bit about Chandler Hooker, basically said the same exact things I said here, except I didn't forget the guillotine thing. And uh, I talked about like Umar Nurmagomedov's performance on the Kiesa Magni card. And then I did a full, a full commentary on uh, the Kiesa Magni fight because it was wrestling and uh, clinchy and body locky. And it was interesting. So uh, if you're a patron of the fight site, you can watch the commentary with the video, which is very illegal. Um, but how are they going to catch me? They can't. It's paywalled. So there you go. You can watch the fight with my commentary. And I, uh, at least once per round, I stop it and I go back and forth to break things down. So there you go. Uh, so that's, that's it from me. Uh, what, what about you folks? Well, I'm good. You got nothing? <laughs> I mean, I'll follow Buy my down. beef jerky. Yeah. Buy it. Buy it. I've told Ben before, I, I can't buy his beef jerky. I've had bad experiences with jerky where, you know, it, it's very, uh, it can, the meat can get kind of stringy and uh, it, it gets in between my teeth and it hurts and it makes it feel like I flossed. Uh, and I just, whenever I think about jerky, like my mouth starts to feel like it's bleeding and it's just very unpleasant. Uh, That's odd. Association That's an odd thing. But also yeah. my jerky is the best podcast is, I've ever been on. Also my jerky <laughs> is, my jerky is not very tough. It's actually very soft. It's like more like a steak texture which is, I don't think you'd have that issue with it. But when the co-pandemic is kind of not You'll, really you'll hold issue, me down and force feed it to me? Is that what no, you're I'll let you taste it if you want. And if you say no, I won't give it to you. That's not as exciting, but okay. Remember when I mean, Dan said I'll there were no force... corporate sponsors? Uh, hey, I'm not a, it's not a corporation. It's a small business. I, I'm going to have to get some. It just I just had to get the least acidic one because I'm. I think I'm suffering from whatever, like, Jessica, I went through with her acidity and biome because my S is all out of whack. Um, so I'm gonna have to pick up some of your uh, whatever the least acidic version you uh, you have, Ben. I'll have to have to buy a pack of. No, I'll have to no find flavor. out. <laughs> you just tell me what you got to avoid, and then I'll I'll let you know if any of the flavors actually make it. Are we still record? Why are we still recording? I, I don't know. Dan I, needs I, to plug his whatever he's doing this true. week. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll say on the way out. Thank you guys for having me on the Fight Sites uh, edition, breakdown edition of the UFC 257. Connor wants to come, but uh, <laughs> it, you can find me at, uh, at Dan Tom MMA for all my stuff for the Protect Your Neck podcast and all my work for MMA Junkie and Live Movements all there. Uh, it's just awesome to uh, uh, join you guys again and, uh, you know, uh, keep the toasty content coming. And if you want toasty content like Cheez-Its, snap into the Fight Site and uh, don't sue me, Slim Jim. You didn't have to pee. You just wanted to get that box of Cheez-Its. <laughs> it's multitasking. All right, I'm cutting it. It's over. The